engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Uh, this right now, it just happened in the last two minutes. Uh, I wasn't even going to talk about this because it wasn't on my radar, but it just literally just happened. Uh, they're not even talking about it on the news. This is the biggest news of the day. Um, if not for the next several years, I'll tell you why, because it sounds rather innocuous uh, up front. But Governor Jerry Brown of California just signed legislation moving the 2020 California primary to March 3rd. Why is that the biggest news of the day? Because this is an attempt by Democrats to get a Republican to beat Donald Trump. You see, the Democrats think that if they move the California primary to March 3rd, it would be the first major primary after Iowa and New Hampshire which both parties require to be first, the first caucus, the first um, the first primary. So then you move California to March 3rd, and it allows a moderate Republican, with the help of Democratic voters in California, to hand Donald Trump a massive defeat. California has the largest delegate slate in the Republican Party. So that would then, even if Trump were to win Iowa and New Hampshire, it would put him at a deficit in the delegate count after California, allowing a <clears throat> John Kasich to run as a Republican and throw Donald Trump off his game, not so that John Kasich can become president, but so we can have a Pat Buchanan-style 1992 situation where Trump is hemorrhaging money in the primaries, looking weak, and by the time he comes out of the primaries, he's limping to in facing a united Democratic front, uh, much like the Democrats did with Bill Clinton. This just happened. It just came online. He just signed the legislation in the past seven or eight minutes. Um, but it's a very big deal that's flown under the radar. Uh, Republicans, uh, it's going to be an interesting Republican primary come 2020 if anyone jumps in and, and um, runs against the president. Now, uh, that's your big headline that's not otherwise going to get reported. You probably wouldn't hear about it uh, other than from me. I want to go straight into the tax plan by the Republicans. Uh, I'll get to Roy Moore here in just a minute. Bear with me, though, because this is big. Republicans are trying to rally, and their big talking point they want everyone to know is that the, this is not a tax cut for the rich. The reason they're bringing that up first is because this is the Democratic talking point going all the way back to Ronald Reagan in 1981 that all the Republicans do is cut taxes for the rich. This isn't actually, they're leaving alone individuals by and large. Instead, they're focusing on corporations. They want to lower the corporate tax rate so that Apple repatriates some of its billion dollars. They're not going to lower the LLC rate uh, and small business rate as much. And there's a reason for that. It is a somewhat nuanced reason. I'm not sure I agree with them. I want to explain to you, having now talked to one of the people who is drafting the plan, I want to explain to you uh, why they're lowering the corporate tax rate lower than the LLC rate. Okay, so let me explain this one to you. And I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds here, but you need to understand that uh, the LLC, the limited liability company or corporate, the limited liability company and the corporation, 
They are organizational entities for businesses. The primary purpose of a corporation is a liability shield for an individual who's in business. So that if you go into business and you're making trampolines, if you incorporate your business and you ship a trampoline that breaks and injures someone, you personally can't get sued because the organization is given an individuality and so only the corporation that made the trampoline can be sued. So people form these corporations. The problem is that corporate law over time has taken on a life of its own and it's also developed its own tax structure. And in that corporate tax structure, what happens is when a corporation makes a profit, that profit by the corporation is taxed because the corporation is a separate individual for purposes of law. And then whatever's left over after that tax, you want to withdraw it for yourself. Well, when you withdraw it for yourself in the form of a dividend or in the form of a salary payment, what happens? You get taxed a second time. That money gets taxed twice. The corporation gets taxed and then you get taxed. So in the 1900s, they came up with the idea of the LLC, the Limited Liability Company. And what they would do with the Limited Liability Company is that they would give an individual the corporate liability shield and say, we're going to treat this as a corporation in terms of being sued and suing, but we're not going to allow the company to hold money and get taxed as a corporation. We're just going to flow all of it through to the individual's tax income. So all of the net profit is taxed at the individual rate. Now, the downside here is that you can't hold money and build it up inside an LLC. It all comes to you. You may keep it in a separate bank account. You may account for it separately. But for tax purposes, it's all treated as yours. And so when you get the tax bill and say, oh, well, you made X amount of money, you're allowed to then take that money out of the checking account and pay the tax bill without getting taxed a separate time. But a corporation can build up massive piles of cash in a corporate checking account without an individual having to worry about his tax liability, the, the owner worrying about his tax liability. If an LLC does that, the owner's got to worry about his tax, tax liability. So it's, it's an LLC, by and large, is used for small companies, not large companies. They flow through taxation to the individual. The reforms by the Republicans are going to tax corporations at a lower rate than a business that chooses to go as an LLC. Now, their argument for this, their reason for this, is because they say the corporation, when it then sends money to the individual, the money's going to get taxed that second time. So they are raising the, keeping the LLC rate higher to offset and basically average out the double taxation that occurs through the corporation. Essentially, they're saying that if a, the money from a corporation is going to be taxed at this rate, and then it's going to be taxed at this rate, and together, that averages out to what we're going to tax the LLC as. Because remember, the purpose of the LLC is not taxation so much as it is liability. At least, that's their thinking. You can disagree with it. That, that's fine. I'm just trying to explain to you what they're doing. One of the other things that they want to do is they want to raise the standard deduction uh, significantly so that more people take that and try instead of trying to use the itemized deductions. And they're no longer going to allow you to deduct state and local taxes. 
This sounds like a bad idea, but the reason for it is because since you can deduct state and local taxes, states and localities don't have any reason to be fiscally responsible because you're going to offset any taxes you pay to them to the federal government. So you never have to worry about your state having out-of-control taxation. You get rid of the state and state and locality uh, tax deductions. Suddenly, you have to be concerned when your state raises taxes. Your state governments no longer get a free pass. This is hugely controversial in Democratic states. And the reason it's controversial in Democratic states is because whether you're in Illinois or, or well, I shouldn't say Illinois, Illinois actually taxes its citizens less than Georgia. But so whether you're in Georgia or New York, you suddenly have to worry about your your individual income tax rate. It suddenly becomes controversial at the state level. So the state level governors don't like it. Um, my initial reaction to this plan is that this is a good step in the right direction. It doesn't give me everything I want. Um, I think there could be some more pro-family policies in there other than a larger a child tax credit. Uh, and I, I think that they should have overall tax decreases, not just tax reform, that this should increase the deficit, not be deficit neutral, that everybody should get a tax cut out of it. But I cannot argue with the fact that this does simplify the American tax system greatly, and that's something that hasn't happened since 1986. And I don't mind that they're prioritizing the tax reform package to focus on businesses, because if you simplify the tax code for businesses it saves them money, which they can pull back into this country to create American jobs. And right now, I would tell you my gut reaction to this tax plan is that this will be a job creator friendly tax plan. And that's something we need after eight years of Obama. So for the average American, they will save $1,000 a year on the Republican tax plan. There are already liberal reporters. Now, pay attention to this. This is If you only pay attention to one thing on this show today, this is it right here in the short segment. The liberal reporters who are knocking this plan say it will only save people 1000 bucks a month. It roughly... Uh, or a thousand bucks a year, roughly a hundred dollars a month, so about twelve hundred dollars a year. Actually, they can't do math. You'll save about a hundred dollars a month, and yet these are the same liberals who believe that you women out there can't afford your own birth control. So maybe this is the Republican way of letting you buy it yourself. Hell, you can buy a couple packs a month with that much, or a hundred bucks. I mean, seriously. I know some poor people in Atlanta who would love your $100 a month if you think uh, it's no big deal. It's nothing. Uh, one reporter who used to write for Roll Call now writes for, for the liberal site, Mike, tweeted, saving $1,000 a year on taxes is nothing, less than $100 a month. Okay. I know a poor person who could really use that. And this is the mindset, again, of the liberal reporters who are covering this, that this isn't really a tax. Nobody, I mean, 80-some-odd dollars, we blow that on a foodie joint that opens in Hipsterville when we unbutton our skinny jeans so we can stuff in that last bite. They don't care about the homeless man under the bridge. They don't care about any of this. You know, David Perdue, by the way, you should know, has come out blasting the Republican leaders, blasting. The, I mean, both barrels blazing from David Perdue uh, over their failure to repeal Obamacare, uh, raising questions about whether they can even get tax reform done. 
Uh, and well, this all comes on the kale chips. Yeah, they want kale chips. And maybe they can afford that with 100 bucks a month. What about Roy Moore? We'll talk about him when we come back. I think I have a actual accurate definition of white privilege. Young millennial white reporters saying a thousand bucks a year really isn't a big deal. There's your white privilege right there. Yeah. Wow. It, this is amazing. Okay. David Perdue is blowing up congressional leaders for their failure to repeal Obamacare, casting doubts on whether they can do anything. And this comes on the heel of Mitch McConnell's no good, terrible, very bad night. Uh, Roy Moore, he's not elected to the Senate, but he's won the Republican primary, which in Alabama is all but getting him to the Senate. By the way, I have heard, uh, and there is credible satellite flyover evidence to suggest that Alabamians have bought, have stockpiled, no less, septic tanks. And once they figure out how to drive them, they're going to invade Georgia. You just be on the lookout for rednecks driving septic tanks. I'm just saying. In any event, Roy Moore has won the Alabama Republican primary. He campaigned on, and this is what reporters miss, and, you know, Reporters have narratives. Reporters have things in their mind, and it's very hard to get a reporter to deviate from the things they think are true and the narratives they want to um, paint. And one of the narratives is that uh, Donald Trump is bad and everything Donald Trump touches is ruined. And therefore, Donald Trump supported Luther Strange. Therefore, of course, Luther Strange was going to lose. But this isn't really true. I know a great deal of people who supported Roy Moore and all of them were diehard Donald Trump supporters. And none of them believed that Donald Trump really wanted Luther Strange. Every single one of them to a person believed he really wanted Roy Moore. This is another one of those cases, and it took me a while to figure this out too, but most national political reporters are failing miserably at figuring it out um, about taking Donald Trump seriously and not literally. The voters in Alabama took Donald Trump very seriously that he wanted a disruptor who would fight Mitch McConnell. They did not take him literally that he meant Luther Strange. In fact, they knew better. Roy Moore is the most Trumpian candidate in America today. And he is probably going to be in the United States Senate, although I wouldn't put it past Mitch McConnell backing the Democrat privately. I really wouldn't put it past Mitch McConnell to do that. Because Mitch McConnell is all about Mitch McConnell. He's not about the Republicans. He's not about the president. He's about Mitch McConnell. And if Roy Moore gets to the Senate, it would rock Mitch McConnell's world. So it wouldn't surprise me in the least little bit if they help the Democrat in Alabama privately, subtly, latently, behind the scenes, help the Democrat. But this was all about Mitch McConnell. You know, back in 2010... Conservative Tea Party activists decided to fight the Republican establishment. They felt like the Republican establishment was cutting too many deals with President Obama. So they went out and they recruited guys like Marco Rubio. And then they saw Mitch McConnell support a guy like Charlie Crist. 
So they went out and they supported a guy like Rand Paul. And they saw Mitch McConnell back Trey Grayson. And they challenged uh, Bob Bennett in, in, in Utah, who had was basically phoning it in. And picked Mike Lee, and they saw Republicans pour everything in to oppose Mike Lee. And when Bob Bennett didn't make it through the Utah State Convention, they backed the opponent. I can't even remember the opponent's name, but they they backed the opponent against Mike Lee. And then in 2012, they oh they also they they backed Jane Norton over Ken Buck. And when Ken Buck got the nomination in Colorado in 2010, you'll recall they took all the money budgeted for Colorado and moved it to California to help Carly Fiorina lose that race. Ken Buck lost by a point and a half, winning independence. He was the only Republican to get over 40 percent in Colorado that year. He got 48.5 percent, almost won. But the GOP had spent their money trying to blow him up and then wouldn't help him across the finish line. And it was all Mitch McConnell's doing. In 2012, they backed David Dewhurst to stop Ted Cruz, and they lost. Time and time again, Mitch McConnell has backed establishment pukes against conservative heroes. And the establishment, well, they finally made the base so mad that in 2016, the base said, you know what, let's just burn it all down. Let's back Trump. So then you get to now, Jeff Sessions goes to the administration. Nobody in Alabama believed that Donald Trump really wanted Luther Strange there. And they certainly didn't believe Luther Strange when at the very last minute he started campaigning against Mitch McConnell. The fact that both candidates, though, in Alabama campaigned against Mitch McConnell tells you everything you need to know here. This was not a race about Donald Trump. This was a race about Mitch McConnell. And the beatings in primaries will continue until Mitch McConnell is beaten. You know, there's an interesting corollary to Roy Moore winning in Alabama, and that's Bob Corker not running again in Tennessee because he knows he would get a primary challenge from the right and he would lose it. Uh, Peyton Manning has come out this afternoon and said essentially there is no way on God's good earth he would ever want to be in the United States Senate, and he is not running for the Senate in Tennessee. He would win. Peyton Manning could run as an independent and win in, in, in Tennessee. He could run as a Democrat and win. He could run as a Republican and win, but he's not going to run. He wants nothing to do with it. And can you blame him? By the way, on the personal front, for a moment, let me just say, I don't know what you guys have done, but I, it's, it's all your fault. Um, the Amazon and Barnes and Noble have dramatically upped their, uh, orders for books. They've had to go back to press and print more of them. And I, I blame all of you. Thank you very much. Um, not really blame, but credit. If you want to pre-order, I mean, I got a King, a couple presidents, some vice presidents, uh, senators and congressmen and actors who've won Academy Awards getting this book. You can get it too by texting wake W A K E to four, 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 nine, nine, nine. Also, um, I did a podcast last night uh, for the podcast subscribers on uh, the theology of suffering, which is the second chapter of my book. It's basically reading it. That's not the name of the cha- That's what I wanted to name the chapter, but they're like, are you kidding? No one will buy your book if you have a chapter called the theology of suffering. But that's essentially what it's called. They changed it to the very innocuous summer in the South. That's the actual title of the chapter. But it's all about why you're miserable. <laughs> 
or at least why I was miserable when I wrote it. Um, but if you text SHOW, S-H-O-W, to 444-999, uh, you can get that podcast and, and learn all about the theology of suffering. What, well, why, is, why are you suffering, and what good is suffering, um, and all of that. Yes, it's all there. Yes, believe it or not, that is the very second chapter of my book. I'm telling you, it's not a political book. It's being filed under spirituality by the book publisher. So you can get it uh, by texting SHOW to 444-999, the podcast. You can order the book. Everything through that way. When we come back, the Russian advertising. I have a source who is in the meeting with Barack Obama and Mark Zuckerberg who told me today who the leaker was of that story to the Washington Post that has now been retracted. And I will explain to you why it was retracted and who this source of mine says leaked the story. It will all suddenly make sense to you. I'm just going to begin with a pet peeve here, and this will only take a minute. Here's a, 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 a piece at the Patheos website. Southern Baptist preacher affirms polyamory. That's right. Um, he is a poly-affirming Christian leader. Y'all, if you are polyamory supporting, you're neither Christian nor a leader. And my, my pet peeve today is that uh, if you go to the if you show up at the at the media and you say uh, you believe in Muhammad and Buddha and Jesus Christ never existed and you're a Christian, they'll say oh, Christian pastor who rejects. G-. Of course, they're going to call you if you want to be called a Christian, you get to be called a Christian unless you actually are one. That's my pet peeve. Now, we will move on. And don't give me the judging stuff. You know, the Bible says you're supposed to judge. If someone says they're a Christian and they're not, you're supposed to judge. Look it up. 1 Corinthians. Now, we'll move on to other stuff, including the Russians. So, I have a source. And this source, well, this source knows who the leaker is. You know, the Washington Post story about Barack Obama and Mark Zuckerberg. If you follow the Washington Post's retraction, you'll figure out who the source is as well. So it's Barack Obama, Mark Zuckerberg, Susan Rice, and two other people. And according to the Washington Post, Barack Obama confronted Mark Zuckerberg about Russia and Russia supporting fake news. Fox News and Axios pointed out that that's not true. And the Washington Post had to retract the story. You see, Barack Obama never talked to Mark Zuckerberg about Russia. He talked to Mark Zuckerberg about fake news, but he didn't talk to Mark Zuckerberg about Russia. Russia wasn't a part of the conversation. Why would the Washington Post run a story that the president was lecturing Zuckerberg about Russia when he wasn't? 
Well, because if you're Susan Rice and you're the national security advisor and you've been asleep since 2012 when you were mocking Mitt Romney for calling Russia a security threat to the United States, well, of course you would want to make it look like uh, you were doing your job when you weren't. Because, you see, Susan Rice didn't take the Russian threat seriously. She never advised President Obama to take it seriously. And so we've had a series of reports come out in the Washington Post and elsewhere that Susan Rice and Barack Obama, they were treating Russia seriously. They were talking to Mark Zuckerberg. They were telling Zuckerberg he needed to be careful about Russia. And it turns out President Obama was talking to Mark Zuckerberg. And he was talking about fake news. But he wasn't talking about Russia. And the reason he wasn't talking about Russia is because Susan Rice never mentioned it to him. Never raised the issue with the President of the United States. Her concerns about Russia that are now leaking out in the press. Now, I've seen a couple of reports say it was Ben Rhodes who leaked. Ben Rhodes wasn't in the meeting. Uh, and the, the um, Pajamas Media website says, well, he would have known all about it, so he could have been the leaker. I, I have it on good authority, very good authority, that Susan Rice is the one who leaked. Some of the details that were leaked and reported by the Washington Post aren't things someone who wasn't in the meeting would have noted, just based on positioning of the conversation and body posture and whatnot. So I think Susan Rice is leaking, and it's all CYA. All of it. I'm going to switch gears now to another story that has just cropped up on my radar. Delta Airlines is going to start letting passengers text in flight. You're not going to be able to send voice messages. You're not going to be able to send FaceTime. You're not going to be able to send pictures, but you're going to be able to text from the air on Delta. iMessage, WhatsApp, um, what are the others? Uh, Facebook Messenger. God help us, Facebook Messenger. There is no escape. Oh, by the way, why does Facebook divide its apps? I mean, can I not just have the Facebook app? I got to have the Messenger app. I got to have the Facebook app. I just want one app. And not only that, it is inevitably, they're the largest apps on my phone. They consume so much data updating. Why? Why does Facebook suck so bad at mobile? I don't understand it. Nonetheless, Delta is going to let you text. Um, Boeing has won a major judgment in the American trade court against Delta. Delta is buying a bunch of Canadian Bombardier jets. Now, these jets only have 100 seats on 100 to 110. These are actually very nice jets. Honestly, I think that if I were to ever get a, a private plane, I would have to look at these Bombardier things because they got a lot of legroom. They're small, but they have the, the extra atmospheric pressure in them, so you're not going to be dehydrated and stuff flying on them. But Boeing has gotten the American trade court to impose a 200% tariff on Delta. If Delta wants to buy one of these planes... Delta is going to have to pay 200% more than the price, sale price. Why? Because Boeing alleges that the Canadian government helped Bombardier sell these jets to Delta at a discount price. 
and that that's unfair. Never mind that Boeing gets subsidies from the U.S. government through the Export-Import Bank to make low-cost loans overseas. But here's the catch. Delta's buying these planes because they're only 100-seat planes. Boeing doesn't make a 100-seat plane. Delta doesn't want a 737. It doesn't want a plane with that much capacity because it's going to use these planes to to re-energize smaller airports. Because, I mean, you're flying into Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where my parents live. You don't, you're not going to be able to fill a 737. But you could fill one of these uh, CR5s or whatever they're calling them. And they're nice planes, by the way. In fact, um, Bombardier has taken the gamble, and this is the other reason Boeing doesn't want this, is these new planes from Bombardier have extra legroom, and they're not letting the they're not letting the airliners compress the legroom. They've designed it in such a way that you can't structurally compress the seats to give up all the legroom, and they're banking on the fact that. You start flying on these planes, people are going to say, Boeing, what the hell are you doing with my legroom? I can fly this plane and it's got legroom and I'm comfortable. And your plane may cost, your ticket may cost five bucks more. And the airliners are starting to look at this. JetBlue is looking at it. And uh, one of the other airlines out there looking at it thinking, you know, I, I really think that I want to fly on one of these planes. And Boeing's going to look bad. I don't know, I've got several people texting me that you can rearrange a Boeing to to get your capacity down to 100. And uh, no, uh, based on the comparable schematics of this plane and the 737, they don't work. And that's Delta's point. And that's one way Delta actually thinks it's going to get out of paying the tariff is because if it was bidding for comparable planes that Boeing could serve up, then they would be okay. But the schematics of this plane is not going to work for them based on what Boeing has. And so they're hoping to get out of this. Uh, otherwise, Delta would be in a world of hurt. They would have to cancel the deal, and Boeing hopes they would go with them. I don't think Boeing would, or that Delta would go with Boeing. I'm excited about these new planes, actually. I realize they're Canadian. They're not Boeing. But, you know, Boeing gets subsidies from the Export-Import Bank. They don't call them subsidies. They call them a loan, but that's essentially what it is. And Boeing says they need it. Well, you know what, Boeing, if you give up your Export-Import Bank subsidies then maybe, maybe, just maybe, I might be willing to be more sympathetic to your claim. Until then, I want the Bombardier jet that gives me more legroom than your plane. By the way, on this Delta story trading text with my buddy Fred, um, so Boeing... Delta says that it's willing to offer Delta a comparable 100-seat plane, a 20-year-old Boeing 737 previous or currently owned by another airliner. That's that's how they that's their comparable sale. Uh, this new Bombardier jet is 20% more efficient, and well, it's new as opposed to the Boeing jet. My goodness, let's go to the phones. Austin and Vining, you're up next. Welcome. How are we doing, sir? Good. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. I'm actually down by the airport right now. Oh, um, God bless you. Yeah, I actually got to catch a flight out tonight going to work. I do fly for the airlines. Um, just wanted to comment on the uh, the Boeing and Delta deal. I'm not sure how much you know about it, but 
Um, I used to fly with the regional airline system here in Atlanta, and the word down through the grapevine was that when Republic Airlines was in trouble and going bankrupt, Delta then decided to give them, you know, X amount of millions of dollars to help them stay afloat because they are one of their regional carriers. Mm-hmm. And the original order for, the, for those Bombardier series aircraft originally belonged to Republic. And so when Delta gave them that money to stay afloat, Delta said, oh, and by the way, we'll go ahead and take those orders. And what you've already discussed, that the Canadian government totally helped out Bombardier to sell those at a loss. Well, and, you know, Bombardier apparently almost went under this past year. It had banked so much on the private jet market and its new 7,000 series plane that has been delayed after delayed after delayed that they had to have government intervention to keep themselves afloat. They really did. I'm also a a former private uh, pilot as well. used to fly those small business jets and have seen that those Challenger jets and Lear jets that are uh, Lear is now a Bombardier company. That's one of their biggest uh, parts of the company that helps yeah. them. Awesome. Um, I, I got to let you go there. We got a hard break right here, but thank you for calling in. After the hour, I am Eric Erickson. You can text the word show, S-H-O-W, to 444-999, and you will get the start getting the daily email. You will get the link to the podcast on Google Play and on iTunes, where if you go today, you will find a podcast. I have specially recorded it for the podcast subscribers. And it is titled The Theology of Suffering, which is just such an exciting title, I realize. That was actually going to be the title of the second chapter of my book. And essentially the podcast is me reading part of that chapter uh, on on why you suffer. I'm sure you've probably wondered what use is it, uh, your suffering, what use is it in the world. And having, as I was writing, that was part of the purpose of writing that chapter is what I was experiencing while I was writing that chapter um, was just miserable as a dad, uh, dealing with a hurt, sick child and wife concurrently, uh, and kind of forced me to sit down and, and write that chapter of why do people suffer and why is it bad that we want to eliminate suffering. Uh, if you're interested in that topic at all, uh, you can text the word show to 444-999 and, and listen, I'm just, all it is is reading. You'll get a sense of the whole book uh, from there and have the opportunity to order it. So I want to switch very quickly to a story in New York Magazine by Elena Plott, a reporter on Alabama and the, the national media needing a bit of a corrective. And I don't mean the Trump versus McConnell or anything else. Um, what she points out, and I think, you know, if you lived in Georgia during the 6th Congressional District race uh, between um, Karen Handel and what's his name? Um, what, 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 uh, what was that guy's name? Um, I'm thinking, uh, oh, 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 Ossoff. That was it. That was it. That was it. Ossoff, um, that's, that's, I, I can't say on air 
Well, I was remembering is let's just say off. I was thinking something. <laughs> oh, I'm embarrassing myself on air. Is how I remember that. That's how I just I can't believe I never said that on air in reference to him. But yes, yes, John Ossoff. That's it. <laughs> oh wow. Um. So. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy? I heard he moved back to London. Uh, real commitment there to the area. Uh, in any of it, during that race, there was just tons of national media on the importance of this race and how the Democrats were competitive and the Democrats were going to win. And it wound up really not being super competitive in the end. And it wound up not being about the issues the national media said. So Elena Plot, who basically parked herself in Alabama for this race, is saying, you know, Steve Bannon is saying this is a Breitbart win and, and Breitbart did this and all this. She says the reality is that Roy Moore had a galvanized base of supporters and Luther Strange did not. And Roy Moore had it because of his years on the state Supreme Court as its chief justice, uh, making a name for himself and defying the Supreme Court over getting rid of a Ten Commandments monument that he himself wanted in front of the courthouse. And that um, it basically Luther Strange was dragged down by uh, Robert Brent, uh, Brentley's um, impeachment trial and, and the scandal and the bribes and all the allegations that Luther Strange himself was corrupt. And that this entire national narrative of Trump versus McConnell and whatnot, it played well for the national press, but at the end of it, all politics is local. And that is something I think we who cover national politics, myself included, have to remember, is that ultimately all politics is local, including the Roy Moore versus Luther Strange race. No matter what those of us at the national level want to interpret from it, there are things that happen on the ground that we miss that are local and exclusive to the area. Um, so, you know... This piece is, is a good narrative correction for, myself included, the national press, which often I have found does want to read more into stories than are there to shape them to a national narrative that they've bought into. And I would just be mindful of that fact uh, moving forward with a lot of what you're going to hear from the national press corps about these sorts of situations. And it's only going to get worse moving forward into next year. I mean, for example, um, we had the situation in New Hampshire and in Florida where Democrats won seats that they weren't expected. Well, the Florida one wasn't that controversial. In New Hampshire, a Democrat won a seat uh, that a Trump supporter won or that Donald Trump won. And the issue here is that, well, the candidates were really bad. And that only goes so far because, you know, there are years where bad candidates can win. But there are really a great many years where the candidate matters more than the issues. And if the candidate's not going to run a competent campaign, well, that candidate's going to lose. If the candidate's not going to dial for dollars, that candidate's going to lose. I was talking to um, Greg Dozal, who is running up for Michael Williams' seat. Now that Michael's running for governor, Greg running for his seat. Great guy. If you're in Forsyth, check him out. Um, and we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. He wanted to meet me. And it's like the, the, asking people for money is the worst. When I was running for just city council, I, I paid for everything out of pocket. I hated asking people for money. I still had to, to a degree, and I hated it. And he's going through that as well. And like, you know, uh, he's going to run against a, a a guy who has a, just a, a, a large wealth of his own. 
Uh, and I'm just, you know, you're going to have to ask people for money and it's going to be difficult and you're not going to like doing it. But if, if you're a good guy, it's going to come across and he is. And if you're a genuine person, you're going to come across and he is. And people want genuine good people in politics. They, they really don't want people like the guy who's running against him in politics. Um, so they'll support him. And it's just, it really is one of those things where, we all get wrapped up in stuff, but ultimately the fundamentals in campaigns still matter more than most things. Is the candidate good? Is the opponent bad? Uh, are they going door to door? Do they have a grassroots plan? Are they knocking on or are they raising money and dialing for dollars? And that stuff matters. And ultimately, in Roy Moore versus Luther Strange's case, the internal politics of Alabama mattered a great deal given the corruption scandal and everything else down there. yourselves. Uh, the AJC has a story on, oh, what was the company? Um, because prepare yourselves. You can't serve God and money at the same time. The AJC has the story that uh, expect the governor and Republican leaders to yet again sabotage efforts to get religious liberty legislation um, in order to attract money to the state of Georgia. Can't serve God and money. Let's see. Um, there was a press conference. The Accenture, that's it. The Accenture executive was asked an awkward question as he stood next to Governor Nathan Deal and Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed. Would he be announcing an 800 jobs deal if Georgia had adopted a religious liberty bill a year ago? The executive, Jimmy Etheridge, danced around the issue. Of course. Now, Greg Bluestein's reporting this. Georgia Republicans uh, do not want religious liberty legislation. I think it is very impressive that Republicans in Texas are willing to fight uh, for conservative values and can still attract business to the state of Texas with a competitive, no-income tax state, and yet Georgia is really pooping its britches over the idea of doing anything to actually support its voters while they attract a bunch of Hollywood liberals to the state who wouldn't pee on them if they were on fire. I'm sorry for the fecal comparisons here, but you know what I mean. I mean, Georgia's Republicans are scared poopless about doing anything that might offend Hollywood and Fortune 500 companies, even if it might actually help people in Georgia. And it's something people in Georgia like. They're serving money. They're not serving the voters or God, for that matter.